The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. We are today in Deuteronomy 15 again. This is Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 23. It's entitled, The Lord Your God Redeemed You. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you and your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. The verses today are broken into two separate concepts. The first is that of a Hebrew slave, which is followed by the law of the firstborn of the flock and the herd. As we saw from an example in the last passage, meaning the Shemitah from a couple weeks ago, it is fashionable to take portions of the law of Moses and try to inject them into the modern world, as if God is still working out his precepts under the law in our lives today. If this were so, then ostensibly, there should be such books dealing with the same things from all of the other passages as well. 
But curiously, nobody is writing books like that about Hebrew slaves or the disposition of firstborn animals. The reason for this is that these things do not find their substance in the world today. Rather, the reality of them is found solely in Jesus Christ and in our relationship to him. The world at large has nothing to do with the law of Moses. Our only connection to it at all is in our relationship to him. It is man's natural desire to place himself into the redemptive narrative in relation to his current time and place. Since Christ descended, people have done this. They have inserted the Roman Empire into it. They have inserted England or America into it, and so on. And one would be hard-pressed to find a single generation of scholars that did not write as if the book of Revelation or the coming of Christ was dealing with their specific time frame. It is problematic, but it is our human nature for us to want it to be so. Instead, he has given us the overall picture of what is coming. However, he has reserved most of the details for himself. Our futile attempts at filling in the blanks are counterproductive at best. Our text verse comes from Acts 1, it is verses 7 and 8. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It might seem like an odd text verse for a sermon from Deuteronomy, but it is used here to remind us that we have a job to do. That job will end when the Lord returns for us. In the meantime, we are to work on the conversion of others, make disciples, and be witnesses to what we know. And the fact is that the more we know about the law of Moses, the more we will understand God's workings in redemptive history and how it all points to the person of Jesus Christ. I'll stop right there and I'll tell you that just a few minutes ago I had a conversation with somebody about Jesus. And in order to make the picture understandable, where did I go? I went to the Old Testament. Okay? That is where we can find the shadows which lead to the substance in Christ. That is absolutely certain. In the passage today are all kinds of things that will increase our knowledge. They'll firm up our doctrine and help us to better understand what God has done. For example, it is often argued whether salvation is eternal or not. Verses are used or misused to justify one stand or another. But we have already seen it numerous times and right out of the law itself, which is correct. We will see that again today. God provides typology so that we can be more assured in our doctrine because of what that typology presents. The two will always work harmoniously together. Let us be sure of this and let us be grounded in our faith. Great things such as the doctrine of eternal salvation are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a few thoughts for you today. The first is a servant forever. It's verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman. This law follows after what was given in Exodus 21 verses 1 through 11. And because of that, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to give you all of the details that came from that sermon, or we'd have a sermon that's 50 pages long. So please, if you want to know all of the details, go back and watch that sermon. Due to its being placed immediately after the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law of the earth and altar, it is obviously a very important point to the Lord. There are some differences between what is stated here and what was given in Exodus 21. 
especially the more detailed words concerning the rights of the female in that previous passage. Here in Deuteronomy, it uses the feminine form of the word Hebrew, ha-ivriah. This is found only here and in Jeremiah 34, verse 9, and nowhere else in the Bible. In Exodus, there are rights and protections for the female that was brought into a state of betrothal within the household. This passage here does not refer to that, but only speaks of a Hebrew man or woman who has been sold into bondage. That is seen in the next words. Verse 12 continues, is sold to you and serves you six years. The repeating pattern of six leading to a seventh is seen again here in this passage. God created six days and then he rested. The Sabbath called for six days of work and then rest. There were to be six years of harvesting and then a seventh year of having the ground lay fallow. There were to be six years where debts were acceptable, but they were to be released on the seventh year and so on. In this case, there is a six-year period of servitude for the Hebrew or Hebrew S. Verse 12 continues, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. The cycle completes with the granting of freedom. God created and then was free from his labors. Man worked and then was freed from his labors and so on. Here, there is a time of servitude and then a mandated release from that state. The word is hoshi. It was introduced in Exodus 21, and it has not been used since then. It is an adjective signifying free or liberty. It is debated as to whether this means a full six years of work and then freedom, or if the person was to be freed in the Hebrew year of release, which is a rotating seven-year period, if you remember that sermon. If not, go back and watch it. If the latter, it would mean they were to be released whether they had been slaves for any time up to six years. In other words, if the Hebrew year of release is two years from now, they have to be released. Okay. When the Hebrew year of release came, release was to be granted. In other words, a Hebrew could serve no more than six years at the outside. There is nothing specific to justify this interpretation. One must suppose this, but there is nothing to disprove it either. And more, the year of release that we looked at last week specifically referred to that event. This does not. It states six followed by the seventh without any qualifiers. This is true each time this precept is mentioned. Leviticus 25 is more detailed concerning slavery, such as noting that a slave can be redeemed from that state at any point. If not redeemed, during that time, he was to be released at the seventh year. However, Leviticus 25 also detailed what is known as the year of Jubilee. Every Hebrew slave, with but one exception, was to be released in the 50th year, regardless of how many years he had been a slave. It would make no sense to mention that provision while not specifically speaking of the same during the seven-year cycle. Thus, the Hebrew slave was to work six and be freed on the seventh. The only exception is the year of Jubilee. It is this exact provision and the failure to abide by it that brought about the Lord's wrath in the book of Jeremiah, where it says the following. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years you shall let him go free from you. He's citing the law of Moses that we're looking at right now, okay? But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. 
Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom you had set at liberty, at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Now imagine that, making a covenant before the Lord and then breaking that covenant. Because of their failure to uphold this provision of the law, the Lord promised he would judge them, saying, You have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 13, And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. It is obvious that after six years of slavery, if a person who had originally been sold into slavery because of poverty was set free with no provision, that person would immediately have to sell himself into bondage once again. This was not to occur. The idea here follows after the Sabbath cycle. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Lord said, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's Exodus 20:11. And more to the point, in the initial giving of the Sabbath, it said this, And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Everybody remember that? There would be twice as much manna for the people to collect, and they wouldn't have to collect it on the Sabbath. In other words, the Lord did not just take care of the people for six days and then tell them to rest on the seventh without any provisions. Rather, he provided before the Sabbath so that in their time of release from work, they would be well supplied. The same is true with the seventh year Sabbath of the land. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. The Lord provided in advance. This precept was seen in the previous sermon as well. Verses 9 and 10 presuppose that the people are to be gracious enough that the year of release will be a time of increase for the one who is given that release. Hence, Moses instructs for the released slave that, verse 14, you shall supply him liberally. There is a stress in the words, ha'anek ta'anik lo, as a necklace, you shall necklace him. It is a new verb in scripture, anak, meaning to serve as a necklace. It is found these two times and then once in the Psalms where it says the following, therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. The symbolism then is that of the owner heaping up all kinds of goods upon the person so that he will have a new start to life after his years of bondage. This is an addition to the law at Sinai. When the law was first given, it said, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Instead of simply going out without paying for his freedom, exactly the opposite was to be the case. He was to go out necklaced with abundance. Moses says these goods are to be, verse 14 continues, from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. The words here follow after those of the previous chapter in the tithing verses. It said there, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. 
It is certain that if the man had a Hebrew slave, a part of that slave's work would involve the care of these things. Thus, the owner benefited from the labors of the slave. As this was the case, the slave should be cared for from those labors as well. This is certainly the case because Moses next says, verse 14 going on, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. This follows from the next verse of chapter 14, which said, when the Lord your God has blessed you. The Lord has blessed the owner through the slave. His work has brought increase, and so it is right that he should be weighed down with a portion of that after his six years of labor. And there is a specific reasoning behind this that Moses once again brings up. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. The idea of having been slaves in Egypt and having been redeemed from there by the Lord has been repeated numerous times in the book of Deuteronomy, but it also poignantly is stated elsewhere as well. In Leviticus 25, the underlying basis for the law of release from slavery is explicitly stated, saying, For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. A Hebrew slave is ultimately a servant of the Lord. Therefore, they were to be released to their rightful master after their time of servitude. As Moses says, verse 15 continues, Therefore I command you this thing today. Upon thus I command you the word, the this, today. In other words, the command rests upon the truth that they were once slaves and the Lord redeemed them. Again and again, everything comes back to the fact that they were slaves and that they were redeemed. Before I go on, what does Egypt picture? Our life in bondage to sin. Okay. Is anybody seeing a picture of your own responsibility here? You lead somebody to an understanding of the Lord and you necklace him greatly. You disciple him. You give him abundance, okay? Everybody's saying this is typology, but this is also reality for these Hebrew slaves. Thus, the law is justified in mandating these things. However, there may be a slave that does not want his freedom. Verse 16, and if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you. In these words, Moses sums up the previous law, which was more expansive. From Exodus 21, it says, If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. The slave is content, disposed towards both his life and those who he tends to, and his soul is prospering. If this is so, verse 17, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door. An extra step is overlooked here from Exodus 21. It is a step which is presupposed based on the former command, where it said in Exodus 21, 6, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Having him brought before the judges was a future protection for both the slave and the owner. There in Exodus, rather than the words to the judges, the Hebrew says to take him el ha-elohim, or to the God. 
The Greek translates that as pros to criterion teo, or to the judgment of God. In the end, it is God who will see the act and accept it. The wording is specific. Once he was brought before God, the action was then to be performed. This is the second and last use of the word martseia, or all, in all of Scripture. It comes from ratsa, meaning to bore or to pierce. With this, it says, Venatata beazeno u badalet, and give in his ear and in the door. In this, the words ear and door are parallel. The two are tied together as if they have become one. Great picture of Christ coming up. Verse 17 continues, And he shall be your servant forever. Vehaya lecha eved olam, and will be to you servant forever. The change is made, and it is permanent. The mark is a witness to the permanent ownership. This right, repeated from Exodus 21, is given to picture our position in Christ. It is accepted that this boring through the ear is what is being referred to in the 40th Psalm. That is a messianic psalm which speaks of Christ's work. There it says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. It's a different word there, but I want you to know that most scholars think that it's speaking of the exact right we're talking about right here. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. That is cited in Hebrews 10. However, Hebrews modifies the psalm just enough to show us that Christ's work is what is being pictured. There in Hebrews, it says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. It doesn't say what it says in the psalm, where it says, my ears you have opened. Instead of my ears you have opened, it says, a body you prepared for me. The ears are being used in parallel with the entire body. Thus, the opening of the ear in the psalm refers to Christ's crucifixion. Because of his work, he is the door of salvation. John 10, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The slave wanting to stay with his owner, who is then united to him by uniting to the door, is a picture of our proclamation before God of receiving the work of Jesus Christ. The slave willingly gave up his freedom and his rights in one economy and transferred them to another. When he was a free man of Israel, he was bound to the law of Moses. Everybody knows that, right? As Paul shows in Galatians, the law is bondage. It is what shows us our sin, and it is what condemns us. The law is not freedom. It is bondage, as both Peter and Paul say again and again in the New Testament, and Jesus refers to it as well, by the way. Galatians 5.1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's referring to the law of Moses in that passage. The very thing that we think is freedom is, in fact, only another type of bondage. But for the slave of his master, it is his master who is bound to the law, and the slave is bound to his master under the law. It is a picture of Jesus Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf. He is the master bound to the law. We are his slaves. We are crucified with him. As Paul says in Galatians 2, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Everybody seeing the picture? This guy sold himself into slavery. Therefore, his master in Israel is a bondage to the law, and he is in bondage to the master. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He put himself under the law, in bondage to it, and when he was crucified, he died to the law. When we come to Christ, we are in bondage under our master. That's why Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ. He's in bondage under Christ. You got to choose your master in this world. And that is what is being pictured in these verses right now. So when you take your ear and have it pierced into the door, Christ is the door. It's a picture of our allegiance to Christ. It just dawned on her. She got it. Good job. <laughs> but there was always the chance that the master might have forced his slave to remain in bondage against his will. Who could tell if no public affirmation of his intent was made known? This is why Exodus specifically said that he had to be taken El Ha Elohim, or to the God. The affirmation is one which is voluntarily made and openly witnessed. I'll tell you a very bad example of this. It just came into my mind. When the conquistadors went down to South America, they captured the ruler of one of these places that was fighting against him, and they gave him the gospel, and then they strangled him to death, okay? In other words, they forced him into Christianity, and then they strangled him. It doesn't work that way, folks, okay? So, this is what's being pictured right here, a voluntary submission to the Lord, and it's because it is in the presence of God, El Ha Elohim. The ownership is not forced, but willingly accepted. This is an obvious picture of the free will of man in his voluntary surrender to the Lord in the presence of the God. The picture is clear. We who are in Christ are free from the law because he fulfilled it on our behalf. Thank God for Jesus Christ. As Paul says, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And this position we possess is, as this verse says, Olam. Here in Deuteronomy, we have a picture of the doctrine of eternal salvation. The picture given to us is in the law. It tells us all that we need to know. We are his servants forever. And that means any who come to him. Verse 17, also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. This is an obvious reference to Paul's words in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That's why the special word ha-ivriah, or the Hebrew S, is used in this passage. Everybody got that? With the picture of Christ complete, Moses now continues with words concerning the Hebrew who has served his time. Verse 18, it shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you. Lo yikshe be'enecha, no hard in your eyes. The master was not to view the matter as any burden at all in letting the slave have his freedom. And the reason goes in two directions at once. The first is backwards to what has been, verse 18 going on, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Ki sakar sakir avadecha shesh shanim, for double the hire of the hireling serving you six years. In other words, 
the owner saved the cost of paying a hired laborer. Because the slave wasn't paid, he was worth twice as much to him. As a point of context, the words of Isaiah 16, 14 are not what is being referred to here. Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. Jewish interpretation of this is that a hired servant was to be for no more than three years, and thus the Hebrew slave would be worth twice that. That is not at all what Isaiah is saying. He is referring to a hired man counting the days for his pay, and that no work would be done without proper wages. In other words, Isaiah's prophecy was spoken, and there would be no delay. The same thought is expressed again in Isaiah 21:16. The reason why I bring that up is because if you read Jewish scholars' commentaries on certain verses, they go against the grain of pictures of Christ, and I want to make sure you understand that they are incorrect. Okay, the second direction of Moses' words concerns the future. Verse 18 continues, Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Not only had the past been good to the master because of the free labor, but in being gracious to the slave upon his departure, the Lord would take note and bless him into the future. As a point of theology, when viewing slavery as the consequences of sin and sin coming through a violation of law, these words provide instruction. The people of God have been redeemed from that life. Thus, we are then to interact with others as redeemed sinners rather than righteous saints. Too many times people are holier than thou and they want to talk about the rest of the world like they're all a bunch of, you know, whatever, when in fact, the point is we came from there. We're not righteous saints. We are redeemed sinners and we need to stay on the level of the world in order to tell them about the love of God found in Jesus Christ. That is why the master was to treat his Hebrew slaves so generously. And the limitation on the length of bondage, that of six years, certainly makes a picture of man's bondage to the devil. The Bible shows that all people are born under his power. Our sin is inherited. John says that he who sins is of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. As all have sinned, then all are born under the devil's power and authority. But the good news is that Jesus came to correct this. When we call on Christ, we move from the bondage of the devil to being servants of a new master. The six years of slavery, followed by the seventh year of freedom, surely, though, forms a double picture. First, it looks to our time before coming to Christ and then our freedom that we have in him. This follows in picture from the six days of work followed by the seventh day of Sabbath rest. Secondly, it is a picture of the 6,000 years of man living in the world of sin from the time of the fall that is to be followed by the final thousand years called the millennium. It is a time where Christ will rule over the nations. It is a time of liberty from the yoke of the devil and rest in Christ. Does everybody see that typology? Where is the devil during the millennium? It's in the pit. It's in the pit. I was a slave to the law, which only pointed out my sin. I couldn't meet its expectations, though I tried and tried. But in my place, the Lord Jesus, the victory did win. Now my yoke is light and easy, because for my sin, he died. And so with him I desire ever to stay, as his slave may I forever remain. May the joy of serving him begin right now, today. I give up my freedom to sin and receive heavenly gain. My master is tender and caring, to him I will cleave. For all of eternity in his presence I will stay. All that I was asked to do was just believe. And now, life under my master gets sweeter each day. 
Our second thought today is the firstborn of the herd and the flock. It's verses 19 through 23. Verse 19, all the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. Of these firstborn, Exodus 22:30 says, it shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. Deuteronomy 12, verse 6 then instructed the people to eat the firstborn in the place that the Lord chooses. What this obviously means is that the animal is to be set apart as holy on the eighth day, regardless as to when it was actually eaten. From the eighth day, they were to be sanctified and set apart for when they traveled to where the tabernacle resided. During that time, however long it might be, verse 19 continues, you shall do no work with your firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. The animal already belonged to the Lord because of his claim on all of the firstborn of man and beast. This was first as a memorial of having spared the firstborn of Israel while taking the firstborn of Egypt, of both man and of livestock. Secondly, it typologically anticipates Christ and those in him, as it says in Romans 8.29, that he is the firstborn among many brethren. These animals were sanctified to him, and they were therefore not to be used for ordinary purposes. Nor could they be dedicated in a vow to the Lord, which is explained in Leviticus 27:26. One cannot dedicate something to the Lord that already belongs to him. Of them, Moses now repeats the general thought already seen three times in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 20, you and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. This is perfectly in accord with the previous verses of 12.6, 12.17, and 14.23. Does anybody remember the end of chapter 14, what we talked about? Don't look. It begins with T, ends with S, and has I in the middle. Anybody? Ties. I was talking to Claudia this morning. I started talking about ties, and next thing I know, I was angry again. I get so angry when preachers preach tithing. Do not preach tithing. Do not listen to anybody that does please understand that that is an Old Testament precept and has nothing to do with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The term year by year speaks of the pilgrim feasts which came around at the set times each year. But before eating them, they had to first sacrificed and offered to the Lord. But the firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And their flesh shall be yours, just as the wave breast and the right thigh are yours. That's from Numbers 18. The animal was not worked or sheared for personal gain. Instead, it was sacrificed to the Lord, a sacred portion belonging to the priest, and which both priest and portion picture Jesus Christ, and the rest was then eaten by the family in the presence of the Lord, in joy and in rejoicing. However, Moses next provides an exception. Verse 21, but if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Though not stated, we can assume that the rule of the firstborn surely still applies in this situation. The animal was to be sanctified to the Lord and neither worked nor sheared. However, it was not to be sacrificed to him if it had a defect. Offering any animal to the Lord that possessed a defect would destroy the typology of the pure and undefiled Christ who offered himself to the Lord. Of such a defect, verse 22, you may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. 
saying you may gives the impression that it could be otherwise. However, being firstborn and probably not to be worked or shorn, this is more likely a command. You shall. Either way, this refers back to chapter 12 where it said this, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. The firstborn that bore a defect was to be eaten as a common animal within the gates and without first being presented to the Lord as a sacrifice. But like all animals at all times, verse 23 finishes with, only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. Rock et lo tochel al haaretz tishbechenu kamaim. Only its blood, no, you shall eat. On the ground, you shall pour it like water. With minor exceptions, the words are almost identical to Deuteronomy 12, verse 16. As was then noted, to eat the blood is to assimilate into oneself something that belonged to the Lord alone, because the life is in the blood. It is considered an act of idolatry to use it in any other way than designated by him. If blood was not used in the rites of the tabernacle, it was to be poured out and covered with earth. When it was used in temple rites, it typologically anticipated Jesus Christ. When it was poured out and covered with the dust, as is explicitly stated elsewhere, that also typologically anticipated Jesus Christ. I'm not going to give you those pictures today because you've already seen them just a couple weeks ago. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch the sermon. Either way, to eat the blood was to destroy the typology and thus, like presenting a defective animal for sacrifice, it was also forbidden. Though not all of the details were explained in the passage today, because they have been explained several times in the recent past, everything about these 12 verses in this passage points to God's workings for us in Jesus Christ. Paul, as a Pharisee and one who was completely educated in the law, saw this perfectly. Hence, he calls the law a shadow of which Christ is the substance. Paul lived out his life fulfilling this law as best he could. But when Christ came... He missed the fulfillment of the typology. However, with the coming of a great light and a voice from heaven, it all started to come into focus. He was able to take all of that knowledge he had been endowed with, and he was able to then say, I see how this is fulfilled in him. As this is so, he then realized the purpose of it all. The countless details, the many years under the law, the call of the prophets and the coming of Christ, it was all to show that God had kept his promises from the Lord's words in Genesis chapter three concerning the seed of the woman to his loving utterance on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him right up to the words of the Lord on the cross. It is finished. Everything was pointing to God's workings in Christ. Everything. And this includes all of the law of Moses. Paul saw that and he turned from his self-centered hopes for righteousness to the imputed righteousness of God in Christ. From that awakened standpoint, he spoke out concerning the law. It was a tool. It was a pointing arrow, a tutor, and a revealer of what God was doing and what God would do. Paul and the other apostles never, ever spoke against the law, although they were certainly accused of having done so. Rather, they confessed that the law had a purpose— and that purpose was now fulfilled. 
to speak against the law would be no different than to speak against the prophet Isaiah, who was a prophet under the law. However, these men learned to situate the law in its proper place, showing that it was only a stepping stone to a higher, richer, and more glorious place where we can sit at the feet of the Redeemer of all of mankind and revel in what he did with that law, living it out perfectly, fulfilling it, and then setting it aside through a better and surer covenant based on a better and surer hope. If you have not come to that realization yet, I pray that today will be the day. In your futile and feeble attempts at meriting righteousness through the observance of the law, you are exactly and nothing less saying to God, I will do it on my own. I don't need Jesus. I've got this one. I pray that you will find proper perspective concerning this law, this marvelous treasure of wisdom and understanding by finding it in the person of Jesus Christ. And then it is my prayer that you will set yourself aside, believe that God has done it all for you, and submit to that fact by simply trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. In this, you will become an acceptable receptacle for the dwelling of God's Holy Spirit. May it be so, and may it be today, and may all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The point of everything we've seen, if it passed over your head some unimaginable way, is that the law points to Jesus Christ. Everything about the law points to Jesus Christ. We have seen typology today to show us that what we need is what God has done through him. He came and he was born without sin, having God as his father and a human as his mother. Sin travels from father to child, but he was born without Adam's sin. He is born qualified to take away our sin. But is he capable? That's why God had him born under the law of Moses, God's standard for the people of the world. Is he capable of doing this thing for us? And that is the purpose of the four gospels. They record his life, living it out under this law, showing that he never, ever sinned under the law, ever. And then he gave up his life in exchange for our sin, for your sin and my sin. This is what God did. It says that Christ died for our sins, implying that we are, in fact, sinners. It says that Christ was buried. He was buried and he was dead, proving that he was dead. He was the payment for our sin. And it says that he rose on the third day, according to Scripture. The fact that he came out of the grave means that he came out without sin. He was sinless in and of himself, proving, one, that he is sinless, and two, that he is God. Sinless because the wages of sin is death, and if he had sinned, he'd still be in that grave. But the important point for us is that he came out of that grave without sin, and if he died for our sin, that means our sin is in that grave, and it will never be remembered again. It is buried over. Our sin is gone because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And now we are in Christ. And when God sees Christ, he doesn't look at you and me and our sin sacks. He looks at the blood of his son. The payment is rendered and he sees us in all of the righteousness of Christ. How unimaginable is that? If you will simply bow your head and bow your heart to God and ask Christ to be your savior. Please do that today. I have a question for you before I read the... uh, poem to you. This is very easy. 
Somebody better get this. I, I, Claudia heard me saying this. I was saying it out loud today. Somebody's going to get this. Okay. We've just been talking about the Hebrew slave. Everybody got that? Okay. What book of the New Testament deals almost solely with the fate of a slave? And what is that slave's name? Who said that? Philemon Onesimus. Did several people say it? Uh, okay. Who was close? Okay, Ethan. I got five people pointing at Ethan. Okay. I want you to pick a lady in this place, point at one next to you, and tell her to come and take one of these pins. You point at her right now. Just pick one of these ladies and tell her to take a pin. Okay. All right, Mom, you got a pin. He's pointing at you. Okay. If anybody else answered that, I apologize because there was a lot of people that called it out. But I had five people point at Ethan immediately. Okay. Um, mom gets a pin. Can't believe it. Good job, Mom. All right. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations for you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? This is the wonder of what God has done in Christ. He has done all the work and now he has something for us to do while we're here. Let's keep doing it to the glory of God. Okay, this is entitled, The Lord Your God Redeemed You. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, such he may do, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. Be sure this is clearly understanded. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give him pay careful heed to what I say. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, such he does do, because he loves you and your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, a bit ouchy, I surmise, and he shall be your servant forever, and also to your female servant you shall do likewise." It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall to the Lord your God sanctify. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor share the firstborn of your flock. These rules you shall apply. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God, year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. Take it there. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Of this beware. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water, and so the Lord your God you shall fear." Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the many blessings of this life. And above all, we thank you for the blessing of the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and all that that entails in our life. 
It is so wonderful to stand in your presence and know that we are covered by his blood because of all the things that we have done in our life which have separated from you and which continually tear at our hearts even now when we do them. Forgive us of these things. Cleanse us and purify us. But we already are because of Christ. But we continue to ask anyway because we know that we are offending you with what we do. Help us not to do these things. Help us to stand in your presence free from them. But when we fail, we know we're already covered. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers all of our sin. And in his glorious name, we do pray. Amen.